0: I'll invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 47. Our text will be verses 13 through 26. Before we begin, please pray with me. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light. In your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as we draw near to the end of our study of Genesis, I want to ask a rhetorical question. I mean, you can answer out loud if you want, but this is rhetorical. Who is the main character of Genesis? You might think Abraham. He was the recipient of the covenant of grace. He is the father of all the faithful. Or you might think Jacob. Jacob. We've seen in detail the the transformation he's experienced from a heel-grabbing deceiver to a humble believer, and he became the namesake of God's people, Israel. Or maybe you'd say Joseph. His life takes up nearly a quarter of the book. Thankfully, though, we don't have to guess. Jesus told his disciples how to read their Bibles after his resurrection, Jesus claimed that he was the central focus of the whole Bible, including Genesis. The message of all Scripture is the Lord Christ as the Savior of the world. So even when we read a historical narrative like this one, our primary focus should be the same as the Greek men who came to speak to Philip in John 12. There used to be a plaque on this very pulpit that says it. We wish to see Jesus. And we've we've done this all throughout our study of Genesis, haven't we? In various ways. Most straightforwardly, we've seen the genealogical data. We have traced the line of the historical figures of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. How they were all the physical forebears of the son of the Virgin Mary, the descendant of David, of the tribe of Judah, along with the historical realities that brought these forefathers into God's unfolding plan of redemption. We've also seen how Christ was promised in the covenant of grace as early as the Garden of Eden. We've seen that He is the offspring of Abraham that brings blessing to the world. We've seen how, as Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. We've also looked at examples. Examples of what faith in the Lord and obedience to his word look like. Which Paul says in Romans 15 is one purpose of the Old Testament scriptures. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. But we'll take another approach tonight. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church that things in the Old Testament happened to the Old Testament saints that served as, and he uses a word, types. So that we could learn from them. You see, the Lord in His providence brought about real historical events, real historical people to fulfill His purposes. But his sovereignty and his wisdom is so great that he did so in such a way that it pointed beyond themselves to something greater, to the Lord Jesus. We've seen that scattered throughout Genesis. Pastor Taylor has pointed this out for us multiple times in recent weeks as we've worked through the narrative of Joseph. Joseph's entire life marvelously prefigures aspects of the Lord Jesus. And this led the Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal to write this. Jesus Christ was typified by Joseph, the beloved of his father, sent by his father to see his brethren, innocent, sold by his brethren for 20 pieces of silver, and thereby becoming their Lord, their Savior, the Savior of strangers and the Savior of the world, which had not been but for their plot to destroy him, their sale and their rejection of him. So as we join Moses and his narrative and we briefly turn aside from the history of Israel to what may seem to be merely a a record of brief historical actions that Joseph took as the ruler of Egypt to save the Egyptians from certain death, I believe that we see a picture of the greater Joseph, the Lord Jesus, and the salvation that he brings to the world. It is a historical fact that Joseph in his kingly role saved a people alive during a real historical famine. That through his actions, the promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth would find blessing through Abraham's descendants was partially fulfilled. And that Joseph did so, exercising compassionate, righteous rule, from which we could all learn, And that the Lord providentially orchestrated all of this so that his purposes in Christ would be demonstrated and fulfilled. I want us to see how this text prefigures King Jesus. And we'll do that under four Ps. Poverty, provision, purchase, and possession. That's the outline in the back of the bulletin along with the words for you kids to listen for. So first, poverty. We read in our text. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. That devastating seven-year famine that was foreseen in Pharaoh's dream and foretold by Joseph, it had come in full force. The earth was producing nothing of substance for the people to eat. Not in the exorbitantly wealthy kingdom of Egypt. Not in the land of milk and honey, Canaan. Those who had lived in luxury and had not planned ahead were now in real danger of starving to death. In fact, the text says the people languished. They were sapped of their strength. They were wasting away. And while the old adage is true money can't buy happiness, there's another truth that the Canaanites and the Egyptians learned you can't eat cash. So everyone came to Joseph, and they traded their fortune for food. They gave up the reward of the work they had done in the past, anything they had produced through their own efforts and ingenuity. And they laid it at the feet of the man at Pharaoh's right hand, in exchange for grain from the storehouses. And Joseph, being the honest man that he was, didn't use the opportunity to skim from the top and enrich himself. He brought all of the money and put it in Pharaoh's vault. But that didn't solve the problem for long. All of the money in all of Egypt only delayed the inevitable for a year. The Egyptians return. They're desperate. They plead with Joseph for him to save them, acknowledging they have no more money to give. Moses continues. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock. And I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. They had no fruit of their labors left to give. but They still had livestock. The, the tools and the potential they had to produce something in the future. So Joseph has them bring everything that gave them hope for future self-reliance and give them up for food. Which, by the way, would have been good for the animals as well of the people because what would have happened when the people ran out of food? Well, the animals would have starved first or been eaten. And then there would have been no hope left to rebuild the fields once the famine was over. This was good for everybody. So, this trade provided another year of life for Egypt. But the famine was still going. So the Egyptians returned a third time. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Within three years, those who had lived in rich abundance were reduced to abject poverty. They had nothing left to give. So they gave up their homes They offered themselves as indentured servants in exchange for food to survive and seed to plant so that the land would not revert to wilderness. The Egyptians had come to know true poverty. And they stood before Joseph, the only one who could deliver them from the death that they faced. And we, too, must recognize our poverty. True, our bank accounts may be overflowing. Our garages may be so full that we park our cars in the driveway. We may have bodies that are filled with strength and vitality. We don't feel like we're languishing. But our spiritual destitution is far more dire than the neediness of these Egyptians. Because our money and our possessions are nothing but a slave-driving false god if we find our security in them. And because all the good things that we've done in our own power that we would come and bargain to the Lord with, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, are nothing more than filthy rags. And because we have no tools that will help us produce anything that can give us spiritual life. We are by nature dead in trespasses and sins. And so we have nothing to offer in and of ourselves that could prove useful or good. We could search the entire world and not find anything in it to bring us spiritual life. And even worse, in our sin, we would rather swallow down sweet tasting spiritual poison then we would seek that which gives us spiritual life. And unlike the Egyptians, we don't even have the ability to offer ourselves as servants to the Lord because we already have a master. We're already enslaved to sin. Just like the famine of food for the Egyptians, God's word shines light into the darkness of our hearts. It lays us bare so that When we see our sin in thought and in word and in deed, just like we confessed earlier, we see we have no means for providing spiritual life for ourselves. Nothing of value to bargain with and no hope for our future. You see, the cost of spiritual life is perfect righteousness. It's infinitely more than we could ever scrape together. Every person in this room is doomed to spiritual death unless there is a deliverer with the means and the motive to give us what we could not earn from him. Thanks be to God that the story for the Egyptians and the story for us does not end at poverty. For them in Joseph and for all in Christ, there is abundant provision. See, Joseph had not been idle He had been sent by God to Egypt for a specific purpose. And all of his sufferings led to his exaltation at the right hand of Pharaoh. Joseph understood this vocation. It was a call directly from the Lord. He understood that the ultimate reason for his descent into the lower regions of Egypt, his betrayal into servanthood, was to preserve life. So during the seven years of plenty... Joseph was active and fruitful. He stored up the grain that he knew would be necessary to sustain the Egyptians. He wasn't distracted by the trappings of wealth and power of that that magnificent kingdom. He didn't sell off this grain to enrich himself or enrich Pharaoh. He himself procured everything that would be required to save the people when their destitution came. What good would it have been if he sold off all that grain in the plentiful years and stored up money and possessions? He knew what the Egyptians would need is daily bread. That he alone would be able to provide it for them. So he obeyed the command of Pharaoh to prepare and provide the daily bread for those who came to him. And I want us to notice two things. First, there was no other way of salvation for Egypt. There wasn't any other food. Only Pharaoh could provide it. And there was only one way to receive this life-giving food. By coming to Joseph. Remember, we heard a few weeks back in chapter 41. That when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And what was Pharaoh's reply? Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. There was only one way to the king, his servant Joseph, who stood between the people and Pharaoh to distribute the good things that they needed from Pharaoh's own storehouses. No one, no matter how powerful, could bypass Joseph and negotiate with Pharaoh on his own behalf. No one else was given charge of the grain. There weren't many different ways to come to Pharaoh and get the food that would save them from death. There was one way to the life-giving food. Joseph, the designated mediator, empowered by the Spirit of God. All who came to him were filled. And all who refused to come to him would die in their poverty. And second, notice the universality of this provision. No one was turned away because of their class or their sex or their talents or their abilities. The text says, all the Egyptians came and they received food from Joseph. But it wasn't only Egypt that came to him, at least not at first. Moses wrote in chapter 41 that all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. The provision was there for anyone who would come and ask for it. Do you see how beautifully this provision prefigures the spiritual provision of the Lord Jesus? He also was given a task. He spent his entire life obeying every word of his Father in his earthly ministry before laying down his life as a perfect substitute for sinners. And just as there was no other food to be had in all the land, there is no spiritual life apart from what God himself can give us. We cannot make or keep ourselves spiritually alive, but the maker of heaven and earth has exactly what our souls need, and he has made it available in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mediator standing between his Father and sinful, weak men and women and boys and girls. If you want to come to the Father and receive his grace and his bountiful spiritual gifts, he says, go to Jesus. What he says to you, do. That's exactly what the crowd in Capernaum did in John 6. When they asked, what must we be doing to do the work of God? What was Jesus' answer? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The bread of life that Jesus gives is offered to those who simply come empty-handed in faith, trusting in him for salvation. And what is this bread that is on offer? Jesus says it is no less than himself. He continued teaching that crowd in John 6, saying, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is the bread that brings eternal spiritual life. It is in his body that he perfectly obeyed the law of God. It is in his own body that he was subjected to death in the place of sinners. It is in his own body that he rose from the dead the third day, conquering death forever. And ascended to heaven where in his resurrected body he reigns over heaven and earth. And he will return in that same resurrected body. The provision for our souls is Jesus Christ. And he nourishes us when we come to him in faith. Believing in him alone as he is offered in the gospel. Nothing else satisfies. No one else gives life. To truly live, we must come to him in faith, and he will give us himself so that we may abide in him and live with him. And he promises that he will turn no one away. All who come to him will find the life that they seek. He pronounces his blessing on all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, because when they seek him, they will be filled. He gives perfect provision to those in spiritual poverty. The Egyptians recognized their poverty. Joseph had made provision, but the exchange required a purchase. After the people had come once and traded their money for food, then again and traded their livestock, they finally came a third time and they offered themselves and their lands in exchange for food and seeds. The plants. And Joseph responds, So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh, and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their land. So with Joseph, a free exchange of goods took place. The people had something of value, and Joseph, on Pharaoh's behalf, accepted their offer in exchange for food that would give them life. This was a mutually beneficial transaction. And on this point, the analogy between Joseph and Jesus diverges. Because here we see just how magnificent the grace of our Lord is. Because unlike the Egyptians, when we approach the Lord to seek the nourishment that our souls crave, we have nothing to offer in return. The cost of eternal life is perfect obedience to God's moral law, which we cannot offer. The wages of disobedience is death, which we deserve. Unlike the Egyptians with Joseph, we're not merely good citizens of the realm where Jesus reigns. In our fallen nature, we are rebels against his righteous rule as we sin against him. And with nothing to offer him, while we were still his enemies, Christ laid down his life as the payment for our salvation. He shed his own blood to redeem, to purchase us from the curse of the law. He was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God from the whole world. Jesus paid the price for both parties in this exchange. The death our sin deserves in exchange for eternal life in him. And so since the cost has already been covered on our behalf he can call out to us in the words of Isaiah that we heard in our call to confession. Come everyone who thirsts come to the waters he who has no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without price why do you spend your money for that which is not bread your labor for that which does not satisfy listen diligently to me eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food So while it was the people pleading with Joseph, why should we die? It's the Lord himself who calls out to us, incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Because the price to atone for our sins has been paid, we may come with empty hands of faith and receive salvation through Jesus Christ. We receive everything by grace, apart from our good works, our possessions, our potential, our promises. We receive eternal life by grace through faith in Christ alone. But just as Joseph's exchange of grain and seed procured for Pharaoh the land and the service of the people so also Jesus' purchase means that those who come to him in faith are truly his possession. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households, as food for your little ones. And they said... You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. The people of Egypt no longer belonged to themselves. They and their lands now belonged to Pharaoh. They had become indentured servants in exchange for the food and the seed they needed. And the arrangement that Joseph provided called for a 20% tax on the produce they grew each year going forward. And while this probably makes us uncomfortable as Western citizens of a democratic republic, especially one with a history of chattel slavery in our past, we need to make sure that we understand Joseph's actions in their historical context. First, this is written by Moses, the one who leads Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he doesn't condemn what Joseph does here. And one commentary points out, the idea of slavery is not attractive to the modern mind, but in the ancient world, it was the primary way of dealing with the poor and destitute. If the people became slaves of Pharaoh, it was Pharaoh's responsibility to feed them and care for them. It was the best way for them to survive the famine. John Calvin also notes that these same farmers could have planned for the future by saving up themselves, and they didn't. And he points out the final exchange was done at their own request. Even the tax that Joseph levied was more modest than would have been typical. According to Old Testament professor Bruce Waltke, normal practice would have been to take at least 33% of the crops off the top. What's more, indentured servitude would even later be a way permitted by God for the poor in Israel to survive under the Mosaic law. Only with term limits of a seven years service. So you put that all together. And in the words of the church father, Ambrose of Milan, so pleasing was this to all from whom he had taken the land that they looked on it, not as the selling of their rights, but as the recovery of their welfare. As a matter of fact they effusively praise joseph declaring you have saved our lives and then they do something amazing which the esv misses in its translation here the egyptians say let us find favor in the sight of my lord and that word for favor is hane it's a word that's often translated grace it's what noah found in God's sight, it's what Jacob sought from Esau at their reunion. The Egyptians acknowledge that Joseph saves them by grace. And then, in response, they affirm their willingness to live as Pharaoh's servants. So, brothers and sisters, we need this perspective when we consider our relationship to the Lord Jesus. Our alternatives are not between being servants of God and being autonomous. Our options are either being slaves of righteousness or slaves of sin. This helps us navigate those murky waters of legalism and antinomianism. Because while we contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation, we are not now free To sin that grace may abound. And like the Egyptians, the real choice is whether we will serve a gracious king who provides for all our needs or whether we will die of starvation, fending for ourselves. The true choice is between servanthood and death. Christian, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Christ bought us with his own blood for a purpose. He ransomed us so that we would be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So we have no right to pursue our own pleasures in the flesh. We have no right to engage in sexual immorality, whether in action or thought. We have no right to get drunk. We have no right to live in gluttony or laziness. Or rebellion to authority, or unjust judgmentalism, or unjustified anger, or envy, or dissension. We do not belong to ourselves. Our master demands that we live in accordance with his rules, which he tells us is a light yoke to carry. Putting to death these sins planting the seed he gives us of his word in our hearts to produce fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This also means that our possessions are not truly ours. Everything we have been given, we have been given by God. And he gives them to us to steward For the purposes of his kingdom. Which is why, in thankful acknowledgement of his provision, we we are to give some of it back to him. And we're called not to use his good gifts for our own selfish desires, but to be generous, to use our stuff to serve others. And then when we do enjoy, These gifts he gives us, which he wants us to do. We don't enjoy them for their own sake. But with grateful hearts, through them, we enjoy the giver of all good things. The Lord Jesus. The true and better Joseph who lifts people out of spiritual poverty. Providing everything they need through the purchase of his own blood. Making them his own treasured possession. So as we close, let me ask, regarding the Lord's purchase and possession, Christian, are you living in joyful submission to your Lord? Do you see your life and all that you have as His gifts? How are you stewarding these things for His kingdom purposes? In terms of provision, are you content with forgiveness of sin in Christ and the spiritual nourishment he provides in word, sacrament, and prayer? Or are you chasing after something flashier than these simple means? And are you willing to trust that if he so graciously provides for your spiritual needs, he will also give you all you need for your your physical life? Can you be content in all circumstances with the provision of the Lord Jesus? And finally, do you know your spiritual poverty? Do you recognize the depth of your spiritual need? Or do you think that you're fine without what Christ can give? Are you still trying to find a way to Even partially, provide for yourself and and find security by clinging to your own works or your own potential or anything you can find apart from God and His Word. If so, please stop fooling yourself. Come to Jesus and say with the Egyptians, I have nothing left. And receive the bread of life. As a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, I call each of you in the words of that beautiful hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity, love, and power. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Come ye thirsty. Come and welcome God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Yes, come to Him. Come to Him and be satisfied and then sing with all the redeemed, you have saved our lives. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Oh, our God, increase our faith. May we always see the wonderful grace that you have given in the Lord Jesus Christ by your Spirit. Help us to live in light of that grace, trusting that you will provide for all our needs and help us to live joyfully in response, in obedience, as your holy people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.